American Indian Studies Center here at UCLA has asked for every event, class, and gathering on campus to begin with a land acknowledgement. We recognize the continued legacy of settler colonialism with UCLA as a land-grant institution. We are on occupied territory, and we recognize the strength, resilience, and capacity of the Tongva peoples in this land. We also pay our respects to elders past and present of all indigenous peoples, the Los Angeles region, Turtle Island, or what has been called the United States and throughout the world, and extend our recognition to all their relations, past, present, and emerging. So I would like everyone to just pause for a moment, take that in, uh, join me in taking three deep breaths at your own pace. up in the world of broken hope are you there already begging for the rope are you trying to sit back and toe the line do you think that you can barely find the time some of us prepare welcome to bold conversations about race it's a podcast that is a collaboration with showing up for racial justice national small beans comedy and produced by white people for black lives and hosted by yours truly, Dahlia Ferlito, co-founder of White People for Black Lives, and Yvette Ale with Dignity and Power Now and the Justice LA Coalition. So we're here to have a conversation about immigration with Justino Mora and Carla Estrada. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, why don't we start off with hearing a little bit about you, the work that you've done. I know you've been part of Indocumedia. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your background uh, in immigration reform? Well, um, in terms of Undocumedia, <laughs> Undocumedia no longer exists, so we, I am no longer part of Undocumedia. Um, I was back in 2015 until 2018, I believe. Um, but besides Undocumedia, I've been in immigrant rights uh, activist since 2009, up until the present, so it's been a whole 10 years since that started. Um, like back in those days, I actually was for the Federal DREAM Act and it started with the fee hikes and wanting to have scholarships and you know all the good stuff that a student thinks when they're in that environment. But as I grew older and saw the injustices of that my community went through and it still goes through and myself and inspired by the younger generation in those days even, uh, you know, I just decided to go head on heels and you know and and tackle what it's the very complex immigration system beyond um you know scholarships for undocumented students beyond the school setting but also in terms of justice and that means in specifically that i work for it's um law so um when i was a student back in those days i used to do a lot of work within school setting and the Federal Dream Act, the California Dream Act that gave us um, institutionalized um, you know, funding for our school and also some state. In addition, um, that became DACA back in 2011, 2012, and then after that with DAPA, and which you know, failed the, the executive order, and then after that it's just comprehensive immigration reform. And nowadays, I, most of my work, it's asylum, and refugee law and immigration proceedings. 
You mentioned DAPA. Can you explain that acronym for an audience who might not know what that is? Yeah. Um, well, it is deferred action for the parents of U.S. citizen children that are here in the country. So that would be for the parents, but it never ever went through. It was just introduced as an executive order, but it back in 2014, 15, I believe, and, uh, but it never went through. So that's up the picture. <laughs> thank, you, thank you both for having us here. Uh, in my case, uh, I got involved in 2008. That's when I got involved in the movement. And I was at Mount SAC at the time. That's where I got to meet Carla. Um, and it was through ideas at Mount SAC where I became involved in the movement. Uh, actually, some UCLA students at the time, one of them uh, had helped co-found the ideas chapter at Mount SAC. Um, and it was through them where I got involved. And little by little, I became not only involved in, at Mount SAC, but also in my community at the local, statewide, and national levels. That's where I got to work with organizations such as uh, CHIRLA, IDS here at UCLA, and a bunch of other immigrant rights organizations, specifically youth-led organizations across the state of California. And that led me to be in Washington, D.C. in 2010 with the, when the Federal DREAM Act was introduced as a standalone bill. That's when I learned that my loyalty is with the people. Uh, I got to see how the Democratic Party failed the movement despite having control, both, uh, control of the House representatives of the Senate, the White House, and yet they failed to pass the Federal DREAM Act. That's when I realized that my loyalty should not be in a political party, but rather in the people, um, which is you know, the, where the power comes from, where the change comes from. Um, after that, I became more involved in national politics, um, transferred to UCLA in 2011. I actually had to take a, co a couple of quarters out of UCLA because I couldn't afford it. The California Dream I had not gone into full implementation. Uh, so I had to save up money, come to UCLA, take a few quarters off, and then come back. Um, and I was involved here at Ideas, but I, I was mostly involved outside of campus, specifically with uh, CHIRLA and other organizations, just doing a lot of efforts on my own. Um, and my specialty has been, my focus has been on how to utilize social media uh, platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and just my own technological tools to uh, inform, educate, and inform uh, people. Um, and in my case, I believe that uh, tools can be a agent for liberation, but if they're being developed and created and maintained by powerful corporate interests, then they can be a powerful tool to suppress the people as well. So my focus has also been in creating technological tools that can be placed in the hands of the people uh, so that way uh, you know, they're not bought or they're not used in evil ways. Um, so that's been my focus. I've created a couple of them that have mobilized you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people in, in support of immigration reform. Um, and to address the elephant in the room, as Carla was mentioning, uh, Undocumedia is no longer in existence. Um, it was active as an organization, as a platform from 2014 through 2018. Um, since then, I've done other stuff. I did a, uh, a fellowship at the USC uh, um, Annenberg Innov Innovation Lab, where I just, I just got to explore my interest in robotics, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and then just exploring the tech side a little bit more. And most recently, I got a uh, software engineer role, uh, which I won't talk about because it's kind of... <laughs> Secret at the moment. Ooh, 
Can't wait. Another podcast episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, both of you have mentioned DACA or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Can you explain what that is and what are the pros and cons of this most recent piece of immigration legislation? Well, DACA, just in simple terms, it's a work permit. It is DACA, it's a temporary, it's not a status, it's a more of a stay. Um, a lot of people confuse DACA with a status, like DACA status. You have DACA status. I have DACA status. And DACA is not a status. It's just it's simply a program that is a stay. And it's um, it, the name itself is deferred action, which means that it um, it sort of hinders or halts um, deportations unless you have like a criminal record, criminal records with quotes, because as we know. There's a lot of like layaway with criminality and you don't necessarily have to be like a quote unquote criminal and with big words, you can get deported by a broken tail light, for example, and that will constitute criminality. So a deferred action, specifically DACA, it's that, it holds um, deportation unless you have criminal record that grants you a work permit with a social, social security number and that is renewable every two years. So that is what DACA literally constitutes as. Thank you for that breakdown. Uh, did you have a yes, comment? Um, yes, uh, <laughs> something that we, we like to talk about is also the history of DACA, which is um, there is this also misconception nowadays that DACA, that one day President Barack Obama woke up and said, I'm feeling great, I'm feeling generous, I'm gonna go ahead and give a two-year work permit to undocumented youth, which was never the case. Um, his administration along with the entire establishment, and the establishment includes not only the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, but also many of the labor unions and progressive organizations that we can think of today, they were against um, the immigrant youth advocating for DACA because it meant shedding light on the fact that the Democratic Party was in control of government and thus in charge of more than, at that point in time, more than a million deportations. Um, so DACA was a result of immigrant youth organizing of amazing people like Nady Dominguez who helped led the legal part of the campaign and many other people from across the nation who risk um, their lives and their stay here in the United States by committing, by doing civil disobedience actions and risking deportation. So it was a, a movement effort left by undocumented and immigrant youth. And it's important to note as well, in terms of DACA, one, DACA was actually born here in Los Angeles. So that's, it's, it's an Angelino. <laughs> and also the fact that when DACA was written by immigrant youth and then obviously introduced to the White House and they did their own edits and et cetera, Obama did not want to sign it. So a lot of people thank Obama for DACA, but that is not the case. Yes, he signed it af after us, like literally throwing ourselves, you know, in, in protest at him until he signed it in June 12, 2012? June 15, 2012. Yes. So, um, yeah, so as Justina mentioned, we did civil disobediences. So many of us got you know, arrested multiple times. And we did um, hunger strikes. So we were on the steps of the White House every other day. And um, he denied us once, twice, three times until finally we broke him, we can say. 
And that's how DACA was implemented. And we didn't do it just by compromising and be good immigrants. You know, we did it just by literally forcing his hand and a Democrat's like party's hand to listen to us and, and look at our rage. So you brought up a carve out within DACA, right? For folks that have been labeled criminals, right? Folks with records. Um, and you just mentioned the concept of being a good immigrant. Right, And so a lot of the critique around organizing uh, for immigration rights, at least through an abolitionist lens, is the idea that there are some deserving immigrants and some undeserving immigrants. So if you have been caught with drugs or you've been arrested, uh, maybe not for, social, uh, for disobedience, but for you know, a, a violent crime or a DUI that you're somehow undeserving of having status or DACA. Can you speak to that, like that binary around deserving and undeserving? Well, yes, just for start, we are immigrants, not saints. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I repeat, we are immigrants, not saints. You know, not even citizens are not saints, so why would we be? We're human. And in terms of the criminality and the binary, there are these things in law, in specifically immigration, called CMIT um, offenses or crimes, per se, that label you as a criminal that you are a danger to society and that means one DUI and maybe that DUI, DUI wasn't even a DUI but you were accused of a DUI so that is a CMIT petty theft and does not mean petty theft that you stole $555 in Target that could mean 12, a $12 pair of I like earpods or whatever the case is. So um, in the terms of criminality and, and immigration law, they are so intertwined and there is, you know, there is actually a portion of law called crime immigration. And, it, and that created that concept of being a criminal and like created this funnel and this divide between um, the good and good and bad immigrant narratives that we are now seeing. The good immigrant narrative would be that back in 2008, when we started the, um, la the labor for the Federal Dream Act of 2010, the media labeled us as, we are perfect little kids, like college students, we are valedictorians, and we all went to an Ivy League, and we all want to be lawyers and doctors and nurses and et cetera, and we have no crime. and. You know, that's, that's image of the dreamer in the DACA recipient, the current DACA recipient. We see it every day. However, there is also the other side, which is the adults so, or the C student or the, or the student that um, had to drop out of school or mental health got in the way and now they have a petty theft for a $3 water bottle or whatever. And that those are deemed criminals, which created an actual divide within our communities because now we're saying, no, those that are completely clean, those that are angels deserve it more, deserve papers, deserve DACA, deserve the dream at whatever it is, more than the C student or more than the person that has a DUI without taking into consideration what that person with a DUI or the petty theft or the weed charge, you know, if, I don't know if y'all smoke weed, but no, I'm not admitting I'm not anything natural, natural <laughs> podcast. I'm not. I'm just saying a lot of people smoke, and that is 
criminality in itself because it's still not legal in a national sense. So for a DACA recipient, for instance, even though it's legal in California, you're quote unquote a criminal. So it is just labels upon labels of this false dichotomy between good and bad, which affect directly affect your status and your state. When it comes to this, what feels a bad immigrant, good immigrant narrative, um, part of the roots is also the, this push into, that exists to assimilate into, into the country and become as white as possible. And this push, you know, we can trace it back to many decades, centuries ago. Um, and when we think about also how did it come to be this, we have DACA recipients, AKA the good immigrants, and then um, those that brought the DACA recipients, it can also be traced back to you know, the 1990s, um, and specifically also in 2001, when the original DREAM Act was introduced. And the fact that it was called DREAM Act, which I think it stands, it stands for, I can't recall the exact acronym, but it has the word alien in it. And it was actually politicians, elected officials, who came up with that acronym. Um, so we adopted a term that was dictated by elected officials in Washington, D.C. We took that term, we embraced it, taking that which did not come from the people. Um, and that created this narrative which, if you're only perfect, if you're closest to that of assimilating into this country, which is knowing the language, going to Ivy League and, and, and having you know, these high-skill high prestigious jobs, then you're closest to whiteness or closest to the elite system. Um, and that contributed to this good immigrant and bad immigrant narrative, which many undocumented youth fell into the trap. We fell into the trap of pushing that narrative, of saying we are dreamers, of going to protests and rallies and having caps and gowns, of um, giving or providing ourselves as props to many of these elected officials who would hold press conferences with us in the background for them to, put, to continue to push this nar narrative in social media and across just media in general. So there's also a component of accountability from the immigrant youth movement where we have to take personal accountability for being complicit in pushing this narrative and then how do we take it back? How do we reclaim that narrative or how do we deconstruct it? And that's something that we began doing as early as 2011 when we realized, you know, this is very problematic. Um, and some of the immigrant youth organizations that began to think about these things and push, push against that narrative uh, can be traced back to dream activists, to activists such as Brenda Lal, to, um, um, I'm thinking of, oh, Lisbeth Mateo, who's an undocumented immigration attorney here in California. Uh, people who provided really critical feedback about the stuff that we were doing at a national level. So that's when I think about the immigrant, uh, good immigrant, bad immigrant narrative, I also think about our role in trying to bring about change. We fell into the trap of, you know, these elected officials that placed right in front of us. What you're both saying, um, particularly what you just said, Justino, about like taking accountability for being part of that system, like being used in that system and buying into that, that resonated a lot with me, being an undocumented student, thinking if I just kept my head down, if I just got through my classes, if I could just 
be perfect. And it's harmful to your mental health and also like fracturing of communities, right? Because you start thinking that, oh, well, I did it this way, right? I was able to do this. Why can't everybody else do it, right? Um, so I think it's important for us as um, as part of that generation to really reflect on that. So thank you for, for raising that. Um, I would love to hear from you all around what the effects of American foreign policy have been on the current immigration landscape. In terms of my story, the reason we were, my family came here was due to the drug war. And I know that policies like NAFTA have also uh, had really detrimental effects on migration patterns. And we are seeing now the migration coming from Central America. So can you talk a little bit more about um, foreign policy and, and the current landscape? In terms of why we have this, you know, um, this crisis going on right now, let's focus it on right now on, on asylum and the current crisis that it's going on at the border. Not that the border has not been in crisis before. <laughs> it's always been in crisis, but specifically right now, there has been an influx of asylum seekers from Honduras, specifically El Salvador, um, Bolivia, and you know a lot of South American countries. And people for El Salvador, and you know people just, I don't even know how to describe it, but there is this bubble of belief that it, it, it is because they have been convinced to come over to the United States because of, oh, there's more wealth here or whatever. It might be part of it, but it's people are ignoring the fact that all these civil wars that have been happening back in the southern border and, you know, in violence such as MS-13, for instance, have been products of U.S. imperialism and U.S. You know, meddling in those countries, specifically with MS-13 that literally terrorizes like like Salvadoran and you know Guatemalan and etc. Countries. It was you know a cohort, like a subunit of like people within the United States that went to train them in order to combat you know, whatever governments and other groups within those like Salvadoran and now they and now they and they went rogue and now they look what they're doing to those several communities. It has always also been a result of pushing um, it has always been a tool of white supremacy in the country. And when we think about um, its impact across the world, well the Latin American is also around the world, um, its effect also on Caribbean countries and countries that are also part of not Central America, which includes uh, South uh, Latin America, um, and how even our Latin American, American countries facilitate U.S. foreign policy. That's one thing that also comes to mind, how specifically Mexico helps facilitate the implementation of this racist um, U.S. foreign policy, specifically now the current government um, under AMLO, which has decided to play this, let's not get into any friction with the U.S. government, let's just do what the U.S. government is telling us to do and not really address it publicly. And that has led to um, many of these refu refugees to not only face um, violence from um, 
local uh, gangs in, in Mexico, but also from Mexican police and, and law enforcement officials? You know, Mexico, it's very interesting in terms of the relationship of migration with the United States. Very interesting because at the same time, they are greatly affected by the policies of this country and yet they're very complicit um, in terms of, you know, subjugating and oppressing other immigrants from other countries in their border as well. Like, it's very disturbing to think that a country that is so affected in terms of immigration of the United States, they uphold that same supremacy. And Mex, for example, in the early 1900s, one, you know, during the Bracero program, and it was, you know, in, um, in, in those days, for example, there's this story from 1917 or 1912, I forgot the dates, um, and the Bracero program was, you know, in full effect. Um, there it used to be a lot of workers, domestic, farm workers, et cetera, coming into the country. And although they had the right to come into the country, they were extremely, extremely taken advantage of. It's specifically the domestic workers. And this is how, um, you know, um, a bunch of like femmes, domestic workers in those days went into a strike and went into protests at the border. And they, um, you know, they shut down the border for two days. And in, and in those two days, the complete southern border was immobilized. And they were protesting um, sexual abuse from the federal agents of that time, which by the way, just like a fun fact, well, maybe not a fun fact, but a disturbing fact, um, those policies in the early 1900s and um, you know, the use of gas at the border in order to inspect immigrants to make sure that they didn't have lice and they didn't have parasites on themselves were actually used later by the Nazis. They got very inspired by the pra practices at the southern border from the United States. So that is a direct consequence of the violence that the United States has done at the, at the southern border for hundreds of years, literally, and yet Mexico knowing and experiencing all these oppresses, all, all these oppressions, they continue to collaborate and to crack under the pressure of United States mandate. It's just incredible and very disappointing. Something that Justino mentioned earlier around like aspiring to whiteness and aspiring to assimilation, you can see that mirrored in Mexican uh, com complicity with the U.S. government. Because when we think about who's really being affected by U.S. imperialist policy in Mexico, it's largely indigenous populations from the South. So if you take a look at NAFTA, right? NAFTA allowed the U.S. to pour tons of U.S. genetically modified corn into Mexico, decimating uh, local corn economies in places like Oaxaca and destroying local indigenous economies. And so there's this there's this narrative in Mexico around like mes being mestizo, like we're all one race, right? In order to um, to placate indigenous movements. And you've seen this since like uh, the Mexican revolution, populist revolutions, this idea that, you know, you're all one, you're all one people in order to placate dissent. How is that manifested in current uh, immigrant narratives here in the U.S. when it comes to Latinidad as like one uh, homogenous group? Um, and how is that affecting or silencing the indigenous migration that's coming in? 
That's an amazing question. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I can think of several things. Um, first of all, addressing the immigrant rights movement, right? Being reflective, self-reflective, and who is leading the conversations within the immigrant rights movement. Um, and also, in addition to who's leading these organizations, who is controlling access to specific resources, speci uh, specifically um, foundation money, and also access to uh, pop you know, um, rooms where uh, policy is currently being made. Um, many of, of, of those are being controlled by Latinos. Um, and, and part of it, many of them are also US citizens. Um, and also, I can't think of any organization at the current moment who has an overwhelming majority of indigenous people in as part of their leadership. I can't think of any major immigrant rights organization that has that. So that's one piece of reflection that I have when it comes to this. And as Justino mentioned, our immigrant rights movement has been quote-unquote built by white Latinx, by light-skinned white like Latinx, and that's including me and Justino. We are not the darkest, right? Um, and unfortunately, because of our, our approximation to whiteness, um, we get bigger platforms sometimes versus our black undocumented folk, um, our API folk, um, our indigenous folk, um, but we get the platforms because of our approximation to whiteness, because we are whatever they, whatever our subconscious thinks that approximation to whiteness is. Um, in terms of organizations that have gone against that current of against that narrative, will be UndocuBlack, for example, right? And um, in terms of indigenous organizations that are mostly indigenous, I, honestly, I don't think there's none, quite frankly, you know? Um, but I can think of maybe Carecen does have a good number of, you know, indigenous folk, but not quite, right? And, and white supremacy within the, uh, within the immigrant rights organization comes very, very obvious by going back to the good versus bad immigrant narrative. Because when we think of, for example, I'll give you a great example. Um, you know, some, some of our community members, <laughs> um, when they talk about immigration and the term dreamer and et cetera, they often want to compare it to the struggles of the black community, right? Um, which that it's completely unacceptable because we are two different groups of communities, even though our struggles like, you know, are intersectional does not mean that we are the same struggles. And for some reason, because of our approximation to whiteness and our colonization, because we've been so subjugated and socialized into the notion of whiteness and supremacy, um, we like to take away from indigenous and black people and to make it into our own. And this is talking about mestizos specifically, light-skinned mestizos, and use it as a tool to prop ourselves up into our own little narratives and let the others behind. And this is how like, our current narrative of immigrant right activists is affecting indigenous folk and black folk by taking from them, taking their culture, borrowing their melanin, borrowing their stories and their narratives and making it our own in order to propel ourselves up 
into the ladder of social justice. Because even within social justice, there is a ladder and it is treated like a business. There are so many organizations out there that profit from us. And sadly, we are using those same methods to propel ourselves up and leave the others behind. There's a lot going on there and uh, really thinking about a range of um, issues that are relative to folks with, within immigrant community space. And I'm wondering if we can um, switch a little bit over to thinking about some narratives that exist for folks who are not um, in immigrant community spaces. So I'm thinking there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment that's existing in the country right now, which is certainly like revved up with the Trump presidency, but has been underlying um, for decades because of course we always you know, need a scapegoat um, for society's ills. And so of course um, the natural extension of that um, methodology that has existed is, is, is blaming um, undocumented folks. And so um, a couple narratives that, that tend to pop up that like, I don't want to assume that the people who are listening to our podcast right now um, wouldn't be feeling. So we, we, there's a range of folks who listen, uh, who are part of our audience base. And some of them might um, not necessarily be uh, pro-immigrant rights. And so um, accepting that as, our, as, you know, as a fact, I'm curious like when, so there are some narratives such as like, you know, this, this elusive, this like nebulous line, right? Like and people who must come here legally, they must get in this quote unquote line and they must go through the channels and acquire legal status and get their documents. And then those are the good immigrants and, you know, um, and not really taking into account a lot of different circumstances. And one, obviously, that the line doesn't exist, but like, or it does. But if you can talk a little bit about that, uh, that sort of process of what legalization looks like and the barriers that exist and how that really isn't realistic for our country and why, and like how we can kind of fight back a little bit against that narrative. Um, one thing that I like to say when it comes to this question is um, reminding people about the origins of this nation, uh, which was founded on uh, slavery um, and also on the oppression and almost complete genocide of many indigenous communities and tribes in this country. Um, and how for a very long time, um, in order to immigrate to the United States, you technically didn't really have to provide any documentation, right? Mm. Just came in and you just blended in. Um, so that's one thing that I'd like to remind people, the fact that why now we have this complicated system, which many people call broken, but I don't see it as a broken immigration system, quote unquote. From my perspective is a system that is designed, purposely designed to work this way to people, to keep people out and to create this second class kind of citizenship status for individuals. Um, and to put things into, you know, to I guess personalize what that means, when I came to the US at the age of 11 with my family, with my mom and my two siblings, um, we actually consulted with, them, with an immigration attorney and we tried to figure out if there was a way for us to legalize our status. And I remember that after three consultations, the attorney said, there's no way that you can get some sort of status. Um, 
it's better if you just stay undocumented. Um, so we, I didn't see physical line, like as you were mentioning, but I became aware of this, phys, uh, of this virtual line. A happy friend, he is also an undocumented software engineer. He couldn't benefit from DACA. He came also uh, when he was really young to the United States. And his, he submitted an application a very long time ago. And his application is still being processed. And keep in mind, he submitted his application back in the 1990s. Wow. So the government is currently still processing many of those applications. And his application, the backlog, is all the way back to 1997 from the last time we spoke with him. Um, so we have this system when we think about, oh, many people say, again, it's broken. It's not really broken. It's meant and designed to be that way, to create um, this opportunity for elected officials to say, uh, we have to do something about it and to keep people oppressed. Um, and it plays into the benefit of many different individuals, uh, this capitalist system that benefits from exploiting individuals. Um, that's one thing that comes to mind. In terms of law, that's it's so a quick immigration 101 law right now, okay? So when people say that, oh, my ancestors or my grandparents or whatever came to this country legally, um, the, the process of immigration law back in those days, are, it's completely different than nowadays. Most likely, um, white people ancestors came from, like, came through Ellis Island. And Ellis Island, let me tell you, just, just came with a bow and be like, oh, my name is whatever. And I have my aunt over there. And you sign this little paper and then you're like, welcome to America, yay, mm -hmm, okay? Mm -hmm. That was legal, that was the process. This is not the process anymore. It has changed drastically. So when we think or you think about my ancestors came the legal way, yes. They came the quote-unquote legal way, but their legal way, it's not the current legal way. And getting into the gritty of, of current immigration law and why that line does not exist for many of us, it's the following. Like immigration law differs from country to country, age group, and, um, and even in nationality, right? For example, it is easier for a Russian to migrate to the United States than it is for a Mexican. For a Cuban, for example, there is an asylum process, not for a Mexican, not for um, not so much for asylum process for Canadians, right? So in terms of like um, immigration law, it is not absolute, it is not even plain. It, it varies from country to country and um, skin color and age group. Now, let's just focus specifically on like the Mexican grouping because we are most here in this country. There is no asylum process for Mexicans. And if there is, you literally have to be dying in order to get here and maybe, maybe you will get processed. Now, in terms of coming here legally to work or to be a student, you will have to have a sizable amount of money in, the bank, in your bank account and even have properties in order to even be considered for a student visa or for a worker visa or a, a tourist visa. It is harder nowadays to get those than back in the 1990s. Now, let's talk about the undocumented population currently. Many of us do not have a path to citizenship. Um, one of the easiest ways to get citizenship, or actually residency, because residency comes before citizenship, would be a petition. And most commonly, it is a family petition, either by your parents, by your spouse, by your children. 
Now, there are 11 million undocumented people in this country. Most of them are adults that have children. There is a term called anchor babies. And people say, if you have a baby, and like you come to the United States and you get pregnant and then you have three kids, now anchor babies, you're going to get papers and your tios and tias and your uncles and your abuelas and everybody's going to get papers. That is very untrue. <laughs> very untrue. In order to get, quote unquote, legalized through a family petition, a child, you need to have a legal entry to the United States, which most of us do not. So even if you have seven kids in the United States that are citizens, if you have a illegal, quote unquote, entry, then you cannot adjust status. Um, there are obviously uh, differences and there are different components that, that might change, but generally there you cannot. Now, you marry a citizen, another very misconception. If I marry a citizen, I'm gonna get the papers, which is the easiest, quote unquote, easiest way and smoothest way, but not necessarily. Again, if you don't have a legal entry, then you are screwed unless you do consular processing, which means that you have to leave the United States and get punished for three to 10 years in your native country. And then you get an interview and then they decide whether you're worthy or not. And then they allow you to come back. That's another one. Then it's like a lot of people think, well, I'm a genius, right? For example, Justino here, genius, computer person, right? Oh, I can, my, my job can just petition me. Another misconception, no, unless you have a legal entry and a current legal status, which most of us do not have a legal entry. And if you do, great, but if you don't have a legal status and DACA is not a legal status, then you cannot get petitioned. So. This is why we need legislation, and this is what people do not understand about the immigration, about immigration law. People have no idea about immigration law when they think and talk about these subjects. And this is why they always tell us, well, get a citizenship. And I'm like, well, it's not like you're gonna get Dunkin' Donuts, you know, like that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sorry, you know, unless you wanna marry me, I have a legal entry, wink, wink, you know. We're seeing changes, drastic changes in asylum, drastic changes in petitions, drastic changes in every single component of law, but they're not big, they're small, which is why people are not being on the streets, being overwhelmed because these components are so small, they're many a skill that only people that know about immigration law and work in the field know. So basically it's a really complicated process to get citizenship. And what a lot of folks who aren't in that experience don't realize is that there are even country quotas, which I think you alluded to. And there's also certain countries that are more favorable to the United States. So people who are immigrating from those countries will have an expedited process. And those are generally countries that are European, right? And not necessarily southern border, right? Um, so I think that there's many layers there that a lot of people don't recognize that you're touching on. Thank you. So you touched upon uh, the need for policy. Can you talk about what policies are in the works, what organizing is happening, what needs to happen if it's not happening? Like how can we get to a place where some of these harmful policies, uh, hopefully all of these harmful policies are rectified so folks can be here with dignity? I guess in terms of good policy, um, the House of Representatives has been pretty active in passing um, progressive 
quote-unquote policy, right? And one of them, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to remember the month, they passed, you know, the DREAM Act um, earlier this year, I believe. And I can't remember the exact month. Um, but realistically speaking, what are the chances of implementing policy under this current administration? Um, so I guess when it comes to policy, that's, that falls a lot into, one, you know, the, the champions, quote-unquote, in the House of Representatives or the Senate to do that job. Uh, when I think about what is needed at the current moment, I think about creating a, you know, a grassroots movement uh, where power comes from the bottom. Uh, that's one thing that we were pretty much effective doing with the immigrant youth movement. That led to the passage of the California Dream Act here in California, that led to um, pressuring the Obama administration to, to grant DACA. So when I think about policy, I first think about what creates policy. And there's like a lot of components. One, you know, again, the creating a grassroots movement. You know, we need to go out there and, and actually organize people. We need to talk to individuals, to our families. There's like a lot of education um, that goes with that, like informing our community members about their rights, informing them about their own agency and the fact that they have the power to create change. Um, we, we have to do that work. Um, that, that is necessary work. Uh, just liking stuff on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, that doesn't count. It needs to be a very integrated approach to creating people power. Um, so that's what I think about. And also challenging ourselves to do better. And also thinking about how do we contribute to our own oppression? Um, how do our own actions and behaviors and thoughts lead to, you know, the current system that we're in? Uh, we have to, uh, when we think about, you know, creating about, bringing about change, we also have to think about how to, you know, just to put the, the, the Latinx community under the, 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 the spotlight, how do we contribute to anti-blackness? How do we facilitate white supremacy? And also taking actionable steps to dismantling those systems of oppression, to dismantling uh, capitalism, uh, to challenging also the military-industrial complex. Um, and it sounds too complicated, right? Like, oh, it's too much that we have to do. But I no longer see a, a nine-digit number as the answer to, you know, my problems. I no longer see citizenship as the ultimate solution. For a very long time, I've come to the understanding that um, it's about liberation, not only for the undocumented community, but also for all the other oppressed minorities. Um, so it doesn't suffice for only one community to be free. Like, we all have to be free. So this struggle is for the long term. And we have to be consistently and, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis engaging in these conversations, engaging in these actions, and knowing how to be an ally, and also knowing how to lead. But, but also, to be honest, none of them are good. <laughs> none of them are good. So I, you know, ugh, so too bad. You know, none of them are good, to be frank. And none of them actually address the root of the problem. Therefore, for me, there is none. There is no legislation out there that actually addresses all these, like, layers and layers and layers that we have pending in our community. So there's none. And also what's being worked on right now, again, there are plenty, but there's none at the same time because none of them address what we need. 
And like Justino said, I honestly, um, like his version of liberation and mine like are similar. However, I do put emphasis that all the people, you are more than a status. We are more than undocumented status, but papers help. You know, there's a lot of us whose family are not in the country anymore due to these like policies in this, in, in, in this immigration system. And papers will greatly help in reuniting with our families, right? So even though un, like citizenship legalization is not the ultimate goal, it's, it will help our communities to reunite with the people that they left behind or the people that have been taken away from them. So let's not lose of that fact. Simultaneously, we do need to work for our collective liberation, and that means abolishing ICE. But when I say abolishing ICE, I mean abolishing ICE without transferring those agents to the DOJ, without um, you know, implementing or structuring another similar department like ICE, right? And those agents, that have been doing decades of harm to immigrant communities to be prosecuted, prosecuted under violation of international law. So abolishing ICE is not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is justice. That includes the criminal organization that is CBP because CBP has been violating asylum and refugee international law for decades as well. So I know a lot, like, um, a lot of people focus right now at the border recently and think that Trump is the only one who was separating kids from their parents. That's not true. Obama did it. Bush did it. Clinton did it. So that's a misconception. So if we are going to talk about abolishing ICE, we need to talk about abolishing CVP and abolishing DHS that are, I'm older than they are. They, so, I mean... There you have it. They're annoying teenagers. Can I so, ask you to mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, acronyms that you just used? Can you Department talk? of Homeland Security mm -hmm. is DHS and ICE is um, Immigration Customs Customs Enforcement and CBP is Customs Border Patrol. So CBP Border ICE within our communities and DHS is just like the umbrella of everything. And another misconception is that USCIS, I don't know the, the full name, <laughs> but it's where we get all the paperwork and we give all our money to. Um, they used to be the quote unquote nicest of, 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 of the immigration and they're no longer nice. But, um, but I mean, when we think about abolition, like in the abolitionist like a structure, like we have to up, up, like abolish these systems. But when we think about abolition, and we need to think of it in, in a grand sense of the of the word, like about abolition, prosecution, no transferring of that power, and most importantly, what it's going to be in its place, if even. Mm. Like so, that's something that as an immigrant rights like organizers and activists and abolitionists that we are, we need to start having those conversations. And if there are conversations out there in regards to these topics, hit, hit your girl up, you know, I'm here, please. Um, but um, I, I don't know about you, Christina, but have you heard of any of conversations within our vast um, number of nonprofits that contribute to the nonprofit industrial complex and they just amass millions of dollars without giving anything back to the community, but yeah. <laughs> so when it comes to abolishing these institutions, it's that, that has come from the people. It has come directly from activists um, going back 
to the Not One More campaign, um, if I recall correctly, from 2011. Um, but even the notion of prosecuting ICE, um, that's been also something that has not been around for, you know, for a long time. I think, you know, when I think about who has been pushing the idea of also prosecuting ICE, it's been relatively very few of us, not that many people. Um, Abolish ICE took, you know, a very long time for that to be embraced by some of the most progressive members in Congress, you know, one of them being uh, Alejandra Ocasio-Cortez. Um, so how much longer is it going to take for these elected officials to embrace uh, and to also adopt or other messages, which, you know, Carla mentioned include abolishing ICE and actually replacing and getting, getting rid of these institutions and letting the people do the change? Well, um, we did have some audience questions. I think we might be able to get to one. Um, so I apologize to folks if your, your question was not the one I chose, but hopefully some of that came about in these last comments. Uh, one that I will be pulling out here is, uh, I believe that DACA applicants were told that by applying, they were not putting their undocumented family members at higher risk of being picked up and deported by ICE. Did this play out in any way that let ICE use information provided by DACA applicants to target their families after all? Well, that's, that's actually sort of a complicated question in terms of legality. Technically, quote unquote, yes and no. <laughs> I don't know how to even answer it accurately because Technically, they are not supposed to be sharing that information of your family members and, and address and et cetera to ICE because the one that handles those um, applications is USCIS. So usually they, even though they're under the same umbrella like or whatever platform, they are different departments. So technically, USCIS is not allowed to do that. And that's what's supposed to happen. However, let's say that I, I'm a DACA recipient. So let's say that I get arrested, right, uh, smoking too much weed, and, um, and, I, and I get arrested, and that's a, that's a CMIAT offense, right? What we learned CMIAT offense is that those are deportable, deportable offenses which are called crimes of moral turpitude. So you're immoral if you do those crimes. And they go to my house and be like, hey, we're looking for Carla Estrada, like, where is she? And then my mom answers the, like, opens the door, and she's like, what? And they're like, are you undocumented? And then my mom is like, what? And then they just take her. So technically, right, like they are not there because like they went to the DACA forum and we're like, okay, so this lady, um, it's the mom of this girl and she's undocumented, therefore I'm gonna take her. But since they know where you live, they can just go and knock on your door and there you go, you know, unfortunately. This is not to say that like, you know, there's no more initial DACAs anyway, but it's not to say that you shouldn't apply to these programs that we fought very hard for. It's just always keep in mind that that's a possibility because immigration plays dirty. Immigration is not your friend. Immigration is the enemy. So always, we have to always be prepared for that and we need to teach our communities their rights and have plan B's because even though that's not technically allowed, we know very well that they just don't give a crap and therefore they're gonna do whatever harm they're gonna do. 
And to add to what Carla mentioned, um, I can think of several examples where DACA recipients have actually been targeted for their activism. Um, I'm trying to remember the name. You might remember, Carla. There was this DACA recipient who was speaking at this um, press conference a couple of months ago. And as soon as uh, this DACA recipient finished speaking after the press conference, I actually detained this individual. Uh, another one that came out recently also, the article is on The Intercept. It was this DACA recipient who was part of, a, of the, um, I think it was the anti, um, against uh, the capitalism movement. I forgot the actual term. I think what you're talking about is Mapache from Arizona, is that what you're talking about? That he was arrested for advocating abolishing ICE, and he got arrested, mm -hmm. put into a detention center. The FBI actually mm -hmm. asked Mapache to give up the names of mm -hmm. other abolishing ICE activists. He refused, mm -hmm. and they bribed him with immigration benefits. He refused, and this, keep in mind, this is a 20-year-old kid. He refused, was in detention center for months, and then got deported, but he never gave up the names of any of us, so. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing that comes to mind, I would say it's a concern, even though there's no proof, but I would, I would point out to what Edward Snowden released when it comes to, when we think about government surveillance and what happens when administrations such as the Trump administration would tends to be more authoritarian and more fascist, what are they willing to do behind the closed doors? Um, I'm concerned that there might be attempts within the deeper surveillance apparatus to create systems of oppression where there is more cross-sharing of this kind of information and data that we might not be aware about. So perhaps this is already happening in closed doors um, and might maybe one day it might allow these um, institutions of oppression to have better tools to oppress individuals and to identify individuals who you know, might present a threat to the current administration. So before we leave, I'm so sorry. I do want to say one thing though, that, that for those that are scared of this components that we just said and the activism and like our public persona being you know, a liability for your safety, there's always a risk. I mean, I know very well that there's like a bunch of like files around me. Hi, FBI agent, if you're listening. But um, but like to be honest, though, like this is what it takes, sadly, like to fight for our own liberation. So although this is scary, and they probably do already have your information, they already do, like for sure, you know. And they might use it against it. it do not let fear um, eat at you. And, you know, do not let fear do that to you. Um, apply for all these programs. Keep fighting and standing up for your communities, for yourself, for your family members, your friends. Because whether you are silent or not, you're screwed anyway. So might as well fight back. Well, thank you so much for those empowering words and encouraging everyone to live without fear. Um, the immigrant youth movement as you all shared, is a really great example of putting our bodies on the line and actually taking steps towards our own liberation. So thank you for such a robust discussion, for your expertise and for your vulnerability and sharing about your own experiences. Thank you so Thanks much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you to the audience. Thanks for coming out, everybody. We are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid, yeah. so it is better to speak, remembering we were never
The show is hosted and produced by me, Dahlia Ferlito, and me, Yvette Ale. Produced by Kareem Alzine and Hannah Jers Allen of White People for Black Lives and Michael Swaim of Small Beans Comedy. Additional audio engineering by Adam Ganser. Thanks, y'all. See you next episode. Bye. <laughs>